Alright. We are. We are live. Live. Yes. Live and direct. Finally. It's I know. Happening. This is, this is legendary. This is surreal. The great Maximus <laughs> Prime in his glory. Uh, uh, I'm humbled. <laughs> Please, dear sir, introduce I'm yourself. Humbled. I mean Well, there is no introduction that can actually do your majesty justice. Well but said. <laughs> we can try. Well said. Uh well <laughs> I'm known as uh Banji to people that know me and I'm also known as BJ. I'm known as Sergeant Adenarani. I'm known as Doctor Adenarani. I've worn Tell many him. masks. <laughs> yeah. I've worn many uh capes. One hats. of many hats. One of many names. Yeah. Uh thank you for joining me in this glorious episode. Or should mm-hmm. I say podcast. Yes. Yes. Um, I'm not even sure where to start, but we can start by you doing me the honor of naming this podcast. <laughs> you know, actually, you know, I've been thinking about since I've li- been listening to your podcast. Thank you, sir. I've been listening to your podcast for being a I'm, loyal listener. Yes, I'm, and this is actually my favorite part because I'm thinking, what will I? Uh, and it, it was so easy. And it, <laughs> It, it and it's a phrase. I, I mean, I think it's a phrase that I've obviously shared with you, and it's "lapel de vide." Ah, "lapel de vide," call to the void. I don't know if people are ready for that, but uh, they, they don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. You don't have. It a doesn't choice. matter if you're ready or not. Oh yeah, you're gonna take it. They don't have a choice. No. All right, and please, lapel can you vide. please one more time mention what it means for people that might not understand? Lapel if you don't understand, vide. I suggest yeah. you look it up, but. Yes, please. It's an idiom or a phrase, which means a call to the void. Um, it has various meanings, depending on how you look at it. But what it means to me is um, just a call into the darkness, the unknown. Always fascinated by the unknown. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's, it's, it's funny because um, that's one thing that a lot of people don't understand about themselves. Mm. <laughs> Is the idea that it's okay to have a dichotomy to your personality? Ooh, oh, right into the self. Right, my favorite topic. No, we're not fucking around here. Yes, I love this. My favorite topic. <laughs> um, the idea that you can be this amazing person but still be flawed, or mm. you know, have a dark side, be an angel, but also, yeah, slightly. Not angel at the same time. No, I like that. I mean, yes. You know. I mean, what you're talking about is dialectics. I mean, this is exactly that, you know, one can be more than one thing. Right. And the funny thing is, I think it takes that awareness, and ex- not only awareness, but acceptance of that ideology to fully embrace who you are. Mm, mm. Yes, yes, yes. I just, you just, yeah. you know, absolutely. Uh, that's why I like uh, growing up, at least. That's why I really like Dragon Ball Z so much, mm-hmm. and that's why I always identified with. So the main character is Goku. Yeah, yeah. But I've always identified with Vegeta. Yeah. 
And that's because Vegeta, Goku is presented as Superman. I see, I see. You know, okay. he's flawless. He's he always makes the right decisions. Yeah. <laughs> he never kills the enemy, or at least tries uh, not to. Goody two shoes. You know, and I I'd compare Vegeta to Batman. Ah, uh, I see. Okay, in a dark. sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, I and like that. and if you study the his his evolution, his character evolution, he, he um he starts off being you know more bad than good. I see, I see. And over time, over the years, he's represented as, you know, don't fuck with me, but at the same yeah. time, he's kind-hearted and he's not evil. I and, see, I see, You I know, see. so he kind of wears those two dichotomies really well. I see, I see. Um, but anyway, not to get too deep into that No, no, subject. actually, that's, uh, actually, it's apropos, given yeah. the nature of this conversation we're actually going to have. Right. I mean, what you're actually talking about is dialectics, you know. Opposites right. can be true. Two opposites can actually have a truth to it. So Right, right. Yeah, it actually helps with, um, you know, unifying the self and integrating the self and being a whole person rather than, you know, uh, repressing, you know, different areas of the self. But, you know, right, right, right. Great point, great point. Great yes. Point. So let's jump into... Your background. Can you I mean, please shed light on who you are, what you do, well, your, I mean, your host uh, of experiences as a revered <laughs> military veteran and so many other things? I'm humbled. I don't think one word can encapsulate well, it, it, it's been quite a journey, and obviously, I mean, you're my brother, so... You, you oh, know. you are? Oh, I was, <laughs> I was trying to hide that fact. <laughs> you know my I whole was, story. <laughs> <laughs> you know my whole story, I mean... I'm your brother? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Mm, and, wow, and, I had no idea. And that is, in itself, humbling, because, I mean, uh, I've had the privilege of witnessing you up close. Oh, gosh. No, I'm serious. I'm Making uh, me blush. You know, you, you, you've done... You know, if people really knew your story, I mean, it's kind of hard to appreciate if, if you're just hearing it versus when you're actually witnessing it. Right, right. Take shape, you know, so. Um, but, I mean, I mean, obviously, grew up in Nigeria, um, born in the 80s. I mean, we're talking about a bacha era for all those people that are familiar with Nigerian politics. Baba Ngida era. You know, during the era where the coups were happening, where um, Abiola got handled. <laughs> Savage era. Yes, yes, it was serious, it was serious. So I grew up there, uh, spent formative years in, I, in Nigeria, left uh, Lagos when I was about, what, 16? Came to D.C. and uh, from D.C. moved to the San Diego and... Um, I mean, it's hard to kind of, because there's just so much that has happened since uh, moving to the U.S. Right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll guide you. Oh, thank you. I'll be your guiding I light. I appreciate. Through this I appreciate. journey. Yeah. So let's moonwalk back to D.C. Uh-huh. Um, you were in high school. How did you get from D.C. to, DC to California? Oh, well... When I when when I was in D.C., uh, 
I was going to high school there in Northwestern High School, and um, the plan was to go to Howard University because all my friends were going to Howard University. Dad went to Howard University, so I figured, you know, that's where I was going to end up. Right, right. You know, and you know how mom and dad are, you know, constantly talking about college. That was just basically uh, a done deal. We were right. all going to go. There was to no college. option. Right, and and that was my plan. And unfortunately, dad said, you know, finances were tight, and uh, you know, I took threw a tantrum and said I was gonna, <laughs> I was going to join the Marines instead. Yeah, I figured, hey, you know what? Few the proud, it sound really cool. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to be a part of something special, and I figured I could do it. So, right, right. I joined Marines after did you, high school. Did, did you ever have a doubt in your mind that it was the right decision, and how the how did your mother take that news? Well, actually, that's a great question because it was kind of serendipitous because, I mean, high school, I was bored. I hated school. I always hated school. never liked school. Uh, and uh, in high school, I was exceedingly bored. After high school, I was in college, went to some community college studying pre-med. I mean, at 16, pre-med didn't seem like a priority. I just wanted to play video games. Uh, and um, I just was just not interested in doing medicine at the time. Right. <laughs> so so um, I, it was just serendipitous. I was working at KFC at the time. Yeah. And one of my coworkers was, this Ghanaian guy was saying, hey, I'm going to go to the Marine Corps recruiting office. You know what? Just come with me. Right. Uh, I'll give you a ride home. Just come with me. Follow me to this recruiting office. So we hop in his car. And at night, it was, I'll never forget, night, I think it was on the Tuesday, actually. And this was 97. We drove there. 20 years ago? Yeah, about 20 years ago. Drove there to the recruiter's office, and they were talking to him. And some guy came up to me and said, hey, you want to be a Marine? And I said, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Hey, you want to be a Marine? What's your pitch? <laughs> <laughs> um, but strangely enough... <laughs> From that moment forward, I left. I didn't obviously didn't make any commitment, but I started seeing commercials everywhere. It was just like I started seeing Marine Corps stuff everywhere. Right, right. Marine Corps posters, Marine Corps, you know, emblems, uh, military, everything just started popping up. And I was like, okay, maybe this is a sign. Right, right. Uh, and I, uh, I thought about it. I prayed about it. And I, strangely enough, I, I spoke to mom and you know, mom didn't, <laughs> she didn't resist. Yeah. You know, she's always been strange like that. When I throw something heavy at her, she's right. like, okay. <laughs> when I say, let me go out and play, she's like, right. no. No. <laughs> Do I wanna, can I join the Marines? Oh, okay. Yeah. But, um, yeah, she signed the dotted line. And, you know, within a few months, I was in the Marine Corps at 17. Oh. And, uh, yeah. And so... What was your f first year like? My first year in Yeah. Take I us was through that. in a different space. I, I remember vividly thinking that um, I, 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 I will not be stopped. I remember thinking that. But it was just a little bit of ego, you know, because it was just this reckless way of thinking that I could overcome anything at the time. Right, right. I, I had I had I had a lesson to learn throughout that period, but my first year in the military was very very challenging, because you know, I'd spent most of my time in Nigeria, 
and being in the military was is a whole different world. I was exposed to people I'd never met before, cultures, um, belief systems, values that I'd never encountered before. Obviously, people are yelling at you and ordering you to do things, and I had a strong personality at the time, which uh, didn't really help my situation. It was very, very difficult, and I had to learn to... Um, Acquiesce. Yes, essentially. Kind of capitulate to the system, stop fighting the system, just just play along, get along. Right, right. And while you're in, I was surrounded by a few people who kind of pushed this idea of, hey, just work hard, get promoted, go to school, um, do your best to, you know, move up. Right, right. But that didn't come without its challenges. But the first year was was, was very, very challenging. I had to adjust yeah. a lot. Yeah. And how was, how was boot camp like? Uh, boot camp... <laughs> Boot camp was, uh, you know, my first night, I don't know, maybe I was in a daze or something because it just <laughs> seemed like, if, because now that I look back, I wouldn't want to go through that. I wouldn't want to put myself through such a, an experience. But then it just seemed like, uh, I guess this is the process. Right, right, right. Just going to go with it. Um, it felt like I was in a daze. First, they put us in those footprints. You know, all those Marines know what I'm talking about when I say those footprints. Um, and we were doing processing. They, they they strip all your civilian clothes off. That's when the conditioning begins. Uh, they cut your hair. They they give you all these kind of tests, right? Uh, to make sure that you're physically fit and mentally sound mm. for the grueling process three months of hell. Uh, but if if you if you make it through, if you have a strong mind, if you are conscientious enough to just do the bare minimum, you'll make it. Mm. If you do go on above and beyond, there are rewards for that. But if you just do what you're told, you'll make it. Just have a strong mind. Right. You'll make it. It was fun. Yeah. And yeah. how was... Uh, <laughs> you need to share uh, your experience um, when you guys got dropped off in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> And you had to do combat training. Oh, yeah. Combat training was... Uh, it was very, very interesting. Was, <laughs> I, I just... I Like I said, I don't. I feel like I was in a daze because I look back now. What was I thinking? I mean, at 17, I just went with the flow. Mm. Um, we were doing Marine combat training in um, North Carolina. And um, I think there's a period where you're dropped. Just... I don't even know. It just looked like a swamp to me. Mm. That's what it looked like. This is what I remember. It was just a swamp. And it was during uh, the spring. So it was raining and it was wet and it was cold. And this is North Carolina. And, I mean, you're trained in house-to-house combat. You're trained in navigation. You're trained in um, close-quarters combat. You're trained in survival. Um, And it was something that I didn't know I was capable of. I mean, this is a skinny kid. I was... I was 5'10", 117 pounds at the time. And the smallest and the youngest uh, Marine uh, during combat training at the time. And that actually never crossed my mind. It was just, let's just get the job done. I want this so bad. I want this to be a part of my narrative so bad. I'll do whatever it takes to make it happen. And that includes being very, very shrewd. I mean, it actually, combat training taught me to challenge a narrative of what's good, what's right versus what's effective. Mm. 
I mean, can you can you expand on that? What you mean by that? Well, I can give you I can give you like a yeah for people listening yeah I can give you like an anecdote. Of course. Um. Well, an anecdote of what's right versus what's effective is just like um, you're having a dilemma with someone that you 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 respect and you want something from this person and the only way you can get uh, what you need from this person is if you perhaps sacrifice your position like your position of being right right you know to get what you need now do you want to be right and lose this potential opportunity or do you just want to be effective so you can get what you want right and being effective could mean taking a one down position. It could be compromise. You know? So uh, that's what I mean by right and effective. It challenges your values. You know, when you're being trained for combat, it, it certainly challenges your values about what's right or wrong. You know what I mean? Right, right. Because, I mean, you're being taught how to uh, confront a so called enemy. And uh, if worse comes to worse, you have to do what it takes, essentially. Mm. Save a life, take a life. So it challenges those values of right or wrong, which is what's effective. And looking back, what would you say was your hardest experience? In uh, just in training, period? Yeah. Or in my military career? Both. Most challenging military career was 9-11. That was the most challenging. I remember that. Um, I was actually supposed to come home. Uh, I was on leave. I was getting ready to come home. I remember. Home. Exactly. I remember. I was going to come see you. And I, uh, I, I, I took leave. I remember talking to you on the phone. You were like, yes. I'm not coming. I really took leave. Yes, I had to call and say, hey, listen, can't make it. They, they canceled. Oh my Everybody gosh. was grounded. All I, the leaves were canceled. I was so, I don't know. I, I can't even think of a word that describes There's how no I word. felt when yeah. I talked to you over the phone. You were like, uh, yeah, I'm not coming Yeah, there are no words. Yeah, I was shocked myself. I was shocked myself. And I, and I think everyone was calling me. I believe perhaps mom, dad, someone called and to, to ask about me. And friends, family were calling me, people that I hadn't heard from. That was the most memorable because, I mean, you remember. Yeah, it's, 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 it's. it's Almost funny to look to look back on, but I think anybody that's been in this position before, having a loved one, yeah, in the military, it's it's different from saying, "Hey, so this year I'm, you know, I live in, I don't know, I live in France, and so I'm going to come home to the U.S. for mm. Christmas, mm. Christmas," mm. and then you get the call, "Hey, I'm not coming home. I have things to do." It's not the same. No, no. Versus having a, a family member in the military. Yeah. Um getting that call saying, I can't come home. Yes, yes. You I know, remember that vividly. I think yeah, devastating is an understatement because you think of other things as well. It's not of just course, this person isn't coming home. It's of like, course, of course. you know, so many other things run through your mind. Of course, of course. I mean, I mean, I was devastated. I mean, obviously, I was thinking just going to be home, but I got a phone call from my office and from you guys and also some other people in they were saying, are you okay? Are you okay? Put on the news, obviously, the towers. Right. Uh, but that was difficult, not specifically because of that, but because of um, the Marines at my base 
on my base at the time that were sent to combat and obviously some didn't make it back. Right, right. You know, that was the most difficult. When you're, start, when you're hearing news about a, someone in a certain squadron, uh, it's just like, I, I know that person. You know, and you start to watch one of the most painful. I remember when the, um, I don't know where exactly the the the, um, the campaign was, but I know Fallujah was tough, and I know there was a period during the initial, um, uh, the, the beginning of the war where Americans were getting ambushed. And... Um, just it was just I, I can't describe what it felt like watching you know the news and seeing these marines or these soldiers or these sailors just in in these i mean coming back in in body bags or watching video of them being hurt it was unbearable it was unbearable and i mean being in the military and watching movies is so different from being a civilian and watching movies. Because I remember right. when I was watching movies, I used to always love military movies, but I didn't quite have the reaction after I joined the in, after I joined the military. Every uh, every military movie just unbearable. Just watching those people die on both sides. Right, it's just it's unbearable to watch. You know, but yeah, that, that's the toughest. Just uh, so I actually want to talk to you about sniper school as well because you told me a really cool story um, a while yeah. back about sniper school. Because so can yeah. you kind of share your experience? <laughs> <laughs> sniper school. So, so one of the things I, I I found myself doing was when I, once I joined Marines, I was thinking to myself, okay, what else can I do to sep further separate myself from just being a regular Marine? So I would think about all these ridiculous billets I could, you know, participate in. One of them was sniper school, but I never went. And one of them was um, Marine Security Guard, MSG, which is supposedly another um, very, very, you know, special billet you can take. Uh, but sniper school was something I was interested in, and I um, started to talk to people, especially instructors at the rifle range, about, you know, what it takes to get into sniper school. And the more they spoke, the less interested <laughs> I began to lose interest. And one of the things he told me was, one of the instructors I spoke to, this guy from the South, it seems like they're always from the South, um, he was trying to tell me that one of the um, trainings that I would have to do um, involved uh, doing a, a crawl uh, in a prone position uh, for about 100 yards. And this crawl um, would take 24 hours. <laughs> and I don't know if he was trying to scare me or... Right, right. Or he was just... A hundred, yard, a hundred <laughs> yard crawl. That yeah. was supposed to take a whole day. He, he said he, he wanted this crawl to be a whole day. If I could do that, then, you know, I'd be in the position to just consider right. going to sniper school. But he was talking about how, I mean, obviously... It's something that requires stealth and patience and, um, you know, obviously accuracy and other characteristics that are developed over time with rigorous training. And it was just something that I was simply not willing to do. I think just being a regular regular Marine was good enough. You don't have to be a regular Marine. I think that was 
Alhamdulillah. So what changed your mind? Well, just... Wait, the, so did you go to sniper school? Or was the, the story we were telling me about, was it just... Um, you mean the rifle range? Yeah, right, it was the rifle range. Well, that, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. that was the rifle range. That was in, that was in boot camp. Mm, okay. That was in boot camp. Um, is that... Is that, that I, was I think it might have been... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was... Uh, towards the end of boot camp, we had to do uh, go to the rifle range. And you have to qualify... And you can qualify as a marksman or a sharpshooter or a um, expert shooter, which is the, the top, which is ideally what we want to get. But it's only a few. I mean, if you're a good shooter, if you have some training, um, if you've been hunting before, you're good at hunting. You you have a leg up. And I noticed in boot camp that those people who came from these parts of the country where hunting was prevalent, they were great shooters when they came to the rifle range. They were always getting really, really high scores. I, on the other hand, I've never, I never held a gun in my life, and um, it was a two-week process. First week was spent training. Uh, the second week was spent qualifying, mm. and uh, I think the last day of the second week was actually getting scored, which was going to determine whether you advance or you. <laughs> went back to remedial. Right. So the last day of the second week uh, would be call day. Okay. Which is when all your scores are being counted. This is when you want to actually be at your best. Unfortunately, I had this drill instructor who I just, I don't know. It seemed as if, I felt like he hated me. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he's, he's just, he just didn't like me. It seemed like he would taunt me. Uh, he always taught me and say, I, you think you're, you know, you think you're all that, right, you right, think right. you're this, you think you're just like, eh, whatever, man. You think you're this. And I said, okay, well, I don't know why you're taunting me, but, you know, it didn't really help my anxiety. So I already came to this thinking, I can't shoot. I'm already at a disadvantage. And shooting all week, it was raining, it was windy, I couldn't hit the target. You know? mm. I couldn't hit the target if it was in front of me. It just... I just was not doing well. And you have to shoot from 500 yards and I believe 300 yards and 100 yards out. Uh, and I, I just couldn't hit the target throughout the week. And my drill instructor knew my scores. He would see. And he would say, hey, listen, you're going to fail. I'm glad. I'm mm. going to kick you out of my Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> ah, bastard. And he, he, he just would taunt me every day. Just... You're going to get kicked out of my Marine Corps. You're going to get... And I'm thinking, what did I do to this guy? So every time after training, what I would do is I would go and take my... Uh, I would just take my rifle, obviously not loaded, and I would just practice the positions of sitting and prone, just on my own, uh, in the barracks, just so I can... So my body could be familiar with the position. They were very, very... Uh, uncomfortable and I'm not flexible so uh, <laughs> I did a lot of stretching a lot of contortioning my body just to get into the right position right so when the day came I would not you know I would be firm um, I would be strong enough to hold certain positions long enough so I could hit the target uh, and in spite of all this I, I just couldn't hit the target until qual day now qual day my uh, drill instructor got in my ear and said, yeah, this is the day. <laughs> You're done. Um, and, and this is a true story. I'm not embellishing. He's like, yeah, this is it. You're done. 
Mm. Today's the day you're gonna fit. And I said, eh, well, yeah, see, wow. seems right about it. Because throughout the whole week, I couldn't hit the target. Right, right. Like, eh, eh, I wonder eh. if, if he was using reverse psychology. I don't know. But that shit didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just making my anxiety worse. And and you know what? I have to say, I, I love a challenge. And that day, I could not miss. I just could not miss. And I would, every shot was in the black. Every shot couldn't miss and I think there was a part of me that I wanted to prove to him I wanted to have I wanted to see a look in his face you know just by passing I just wanted to pass right 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 I didn't want to be a marksman that's the lowest score you can get I just wanted to pass but I just couldn't miss I just could not miss that day and it was raining that day. And it was windy. That day. I mean, all the elements were against me. It's like the universe was conspiring against me that right, day. Right, right. But it just... Uh, it was very motivating because I... Just talking about it right now, Michael, I can think about my thought process. I remember vividly, hold the position mm. tight. Hold every position tight. Do not move. Do not move. And when you squeeze the trigger, let it be a surprise. You know, when you squeeze that trigger and when it goes off, it every shot came as a surprise, which means you're doing something right. Yeah. So that day I qualified as an expert shooter at the very top. And um, really? <laughs> he was nowhere to be found. Really? <laughs> he was nowhere to be found, but I oh, made sure... Man. I conveniently put myself in his space. Right, in his line of sight. <laughs> yes, in his line of sight. And I say, hey, 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 did you hear about me? Oh, my god. Did gosh. you hear about me, though? Did you hear what I did on that range today? And he didn't say nothing. Mm. He just, <sighs> was so anticlimactic. Right, right, right. I wanted to say, I wanted him to react. He just, yeah. Like, eh. yeah. I think one of the, um, stuff you we've talked about in the past was yeah. your experience combat training in the woods yes, yes at yes. night oh yeah can yeah. you can you share some of that well I mean combat training is, is just to prepare you for I mean real life war situation and like I say you're, you're trained in um, you know hand to hand combat you're trained in house to house combat I mean, you're trained in demolition you're trained in all types of weapons different weapons um you're training on different terrain. I mean, you're trained in different skills when it comes to intelligence. And um, in some cases, what you do if you get caught, I mean, they just prepare you for the best and the worst situation uh, if you ever are faced uh, with an enemy. Being in that situation was, like I said, challenged how I really saw the world. I just come back from Nigeria or came from Nigeria. I didn't know anything about war, about politics, about values or religion. I didn't really know anything about the social political climate in the West or the East or anywhere around the world, really. And I didn't know that essentially I was a number at the time. 
I, I didn't know. I, I, just the gravitas of the situation, I just didn't really appreciate at the time. Right. You know, I was just doing what I thought was uh, necessary for my own personal growth. I didn't know it would fundamentally change the way I saw the world and myself. I think everyone who's uh, going through combat training can relate. And I think the reason I'm asking, too, is just so people that are looking to enlist, because there there's going to be a lot of people uh, yeah. that hear this. Obviously, hearing about it can't really you know, take the place of actual life experience, of course, but just of to course. give people an idea of what they can expect. Of course, of course. I mean, every branch is different in regards to the requirements during training. I know for the Marine Corps, it's three months. Uh, as far as I know, it's still three months. And you do three months of training, which involves, I mean, as much as you can imagine, if we're thinking of, you know, understanding how to use a weapon, shoot a weapon, defend yourself, um, training just to be physically fit and physically sound, mentally fit and mentally sound. Uh, it's just basic training, literally basic training. Combat training is a whole different story, and there's also different types of training. There's serious training for a different kind of uh, training. There's recon training, but it's, it all depends on what branch you're involved in. Right. Combat training was attached to the Marines. I think it, only the Marines do, as far as I know, combat training. Uh, but my experience was new to me because, I mean, digging trenches, sleeping outside, you know, in the rain, you know, eating MREs, mm. uh, eating once a day, <laughs> taking a shit outside, showering outside, <laughs> wiping yourself outside. Yeah. I mean, this is, and this is men and women. I mean, this is, when I say men and women, I mean, these are teens, 17, 18 years old. These are little kids, you know. Uh, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. We're not even talking about land nav and, or being, uh, you know, being put in a team to fight against another team and to hunt them down and, and, and to try to to find their position. I mean, right, right. this is just all part of combat training. Uh, but, I mean, it's been years ago. I'm, I'm missing a lot, actually. It's much more uh, to it than I'm saying. Right of now. course, of course. Yeah, yeah. So let's fast forward. Uh to when you, once you get out of the military, mm. what was your state of mind like? <laughs> My state of mind, I can't. I'm, uh, uh, we would have to go to a therapy session. Yeah. <laughs> it was very shocking. It was very, very shocking. I was not really prepared for um, The reason mind. I ask is because you've accomplished. Yeah. I mean, saying you've accomplished so much since uh, you left oh, the Marine you. Corps would be an understatement. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate um, it. There's a theme of a lot of military vets feeling like, and I'm not saying this is for everybody, but they have to start from scratch once yeah, they leave course. the military. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, a lot of people I've personally met mm. um, either tried or were in the process of trying to get their degrees while they're in the military, mm -hmm. or some just didn't even have it once they graduated, and they had right, to, right. you know, go back to square one and go back to college and figure right. out what they want to do or see if, if the tools that they learn in the military can be applied to the real world. Right, right. And I noticed for a lot of people it um, it didn't or it doesn't. And right. it creates a sense of frustration. And, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I gave my life to my country, but now I'm out. Yes. And I feel like nobody's here to help me. Absolutely, that's very, very common. 
you know. Yeah. Um, so how was it like for you? How was your experience like? Well, you my, mine was a little uh, different, but uh, with some similarities. Obviously, a lot of factors come into play with those people that uh, leave the military in that predicament. A lot of factors come into play. But one of the things about the military is it's an operating system. You know, there's a whole um, narrative. There's a whole system. I mean, it's, you live on base. There's a whole city. I mean, there's everything that you need on base. You don't never have to leave the base if you don't have a car. You can have everything you need. You get you get a little reliant on that kind of uh, lifestyle. It can be problematic. Because once the umbilical cord gets cut off, then you'd have to start from scratch. And if you haven't gone to school or you ha if you haven't kept up with the civilian world and, um, you know, what the jobs look like or what schooling looks like or what, you know, even technology, you know, if, if you're not keeping up with what's going on in the civilian world, you will get left behind. And that's what right. happens to a lot of people. It also happened to me, but... I was okay because I was already going to school uh, while I was in Marines, which I just continued doing when I uh, became a civilian. But the military does prepare you for getting out. Unfortunately, uh, resources are not hard to, f they're not easy to find. And sometimes when you find these resources, you still don't know how to use it effectively. Right. So you get spun around so often, sometimes you just let go. Mm. Uh, but. Uh, transitioning out of the military is something that requires a lot of practice. It's not easy. It requires a lot of pre preparation as well. It's not easy, and uh, it does affect a lot of people in a negative way. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I wonder if there's like a... If, I'd be surprised if there isn't, but I feel like there should be like some type of organization that helps. I'm sure there is. Oh, yeah, several organizations that you know, help. Military absolutely. Ver veterans transition. Yeah, doesn't absolutely. seem like it's doing a good job. But. Well, the VA, the VA has a lot of resources, and I think, I, I personally think, from my own personal experience, um, the military helped me a lot, you know, to grow, uh, <laughs> to become a man. The VA were instrumental in my education mm. and my own security, you know, as an individual. I mean, the VA helped with school. The VA helps other people, in some cases, with housing. The VA helps with uh, medical bills. The VA helps with therapy if you have some kind of issue, like depression or anxiety or PTSD. Uh, they help with medical bills. They help with many other resources that we need uh if you know how to find it you must know how to find it first right. yeah but yeah it could be helpful if you know where to look yeah yeah all right so you you get out yes i get out and what happens next well the thing is i got out in 2002 but i got recalled i think twice okay so i just kept coming back and after the last recall, I just finished out my uh, contract, which ended in 2005. Okay. And I just took a year off and went back to school soon after and just focused on getting my education. I wanted to be a psychologist back then, and I thought all I needed was to get a bachelor's. I was very, very wrong. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought all I needed was a badge so I can practice. You know, but then again, I didn't, you see, information is very, very key. I didn't have any, any information. Can, can you repeat that one more time, please? You said you, you got out. Yes, I got out in um, 2005, and I just planned on taking a break for a year, which I did. Uh, went back to school, and I, I already knew I wanted to be a psychologist. I wanted to be a psychotherapist. I wanted to work in the field of uh, psychology. But I, all I thought was I needed a bachelor's. Mm -hmm. So that was all I focused on. And unfortunately, to my surprise, once I got a bachelor's, they were like, uh, I called a few places and I was like, hey, hey, you need a psychologist? Mm -hmm. They're like, nah, bro. <laughs> <laughs> no, you need to go back to school, get mm -hmm. licensed. You need a doctorate, actually, not a bachelor's. You know, so, I mean, that kind of set me on that path once I found what I needed to do. Okay. A long journey. Right. Yeah. And then um, it took you how many years to get licensed? <sighs> well, first of all, how did you decide on what type of psychology to focus on? Well, I wanted to work with families. Uh, that was specifically what I wanted to work on. Okay. Family specifically because, I mean, the family system has a lot of influence on the uh, outcome of a child, you know. Uh, so I figured, well, I can work with families and by doing so, work with the individual as well. Uh, so my choice was to focus mainly on families. Uh, that's my expertise, I would say. Family systems. Okay. Uh, took a long time to get licensed in that. I got licensed as a managing family therapist first and currently working on licensure as a clinical psychologist. Uh, but it was a very, very long process, and I don't want to bore you with the details. Uh, but it was long and grueling. Right. <laughs> to say the least. Long and grueling. Long and grueling, to say the least. Yeah. Yes. So for a lot, of, uh, tears. A, a lot of people out there that are <laughs> aspiring psychologists, Yes. what advice would you give them? Uh, you know, might as well just start going to rehab right now because, mm. you know, there's going to be a lot of wine mm. uh, needed to soothe your pain. But, I mean, in all seriousness, it's, you know, getting the bachelor's in um, preferably psychology or the sciences. Then you can get your doctorate, apply to a school that um, specializes in what you're looking for, uh, has a program with a specialty that you're interested in. And, you know, if you get accepted, if you apply, you get accepted. I mean, it takes about, in some cases four to six years just for the whole process uh, and that includes doing your doctoral exam uh, doing a dissertation and in most cases uh, doing a licensure exam which includes you know law and ethics and right right uh, doing a clinical exam and um, in some cases doing a postdoctoral exam I mean doing a postdoctoral somewhere you know or a fellowship uh, to further improve your skills. But it, it could be a long process. Yeah. And I'm going to talk about something we talked about a, a while ago. Yes. That comes to mind is the idea of uh, forgiveness. Oh, yes. And uh, forgiveness. There was a type of, how do I word this? 
Forgiveness in what sense? What are we forgiving? The idea that you don't have to forgive and you can still oh. live a happy life. You don't have to forgive to have a live a happy life or a fulfilling life? Yeah. Oh, the, uh, well, well, it depends on what we're talking about. It depends um, on the situation. I really like... I really like... Um, I think it was something you talked about in your book, Forgiveness, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. Let me see if I can find it. I mean, I think forgiveness is uh, could be useful uh, depending on what you're trying to address. But then again, I'm wondering if you mean forgiveness of yourself or forgiveness of someone else. Uh, but then again, um, varying degrees of forgiveness. Yeah, they are. Well, yeah, they are varying degrees of forgiveness. But yeah. one thing that you that we talked about was the idea, of the concept of radical acceptance. Oh yes, yes, yes. Radical um, acceptance. Can you can you talk about it a little bit? Because I think a lot of people can really benefit from this ideology. Because mm. for the most part in our society, we're taught that um, until you forgive, you can't move on. Oh right, right. right. That's kind of that's kind of the uh, the theme of forgiveness, at least in a Western world. I see, I see. I so, mean, even in Nigeria too. I mean, forgive and forget. You know, it's a very very common saying. You know, you right, right, right. You can't move on unless you forgive and forget. You know. So can you expand on rad radical acceptance? Well, radical acceptance. The idea of radi radical acceptance. Radical acceptance, <laughs> in the clinical sense, is, is is seeing reality for what it is, and I say clinical sense in the fact that it's a skill using. Uh, DBT uh, which is used to treat um, generally people with borderline personality disorder but uh, radical acceptance is just about seeing reality for what it is and it's not about you know saying whatever happened was right but it's saying that you see it for what it is without any kind of distortions um, without any kind of illusions whatsoever mm. Uh, you see reality for what it is. And, you know, it allows you to perhaps start tolerating reality for what it is or start problem solving rather than just avoiding the situation. Right. Uh, in regards to forgiveness, radical acceptance would say, you know what, I, I, I you know, <laughs> with radical acceptance, you can move on even without forgiving. You can radically accept, okay, this is hard for me to forgive, you know. And I can do something to tolerate these emotions that uh, uh, make it difficult for me to forgive this person. Right. You know, um, forgiveness, I, I believe, has some kind of religious connotation to it. There's some kind of religious connotation to it. And for people who have uh, these kind of beliefs, it may be hard for them, you know, if they don't forgive. So they may feel compelled to forgive because of their religious subscriptions mm. but deep down they are still struggling to let go so the forgiveness wasn't really uh, thorough and authentic what dbt offers or a different approach is to say you know what i recognize it for what it is i recognize this is difficult for me i recognize this is hard and i can still live my life i recognize that i won't forgive you and i recognize that i can still live a happy life i can still live my life i can still grow i can still change i can still move on I can still heal from whatever pain that I'm trying to kill from. Right, right. You know, um, by seeing reality for what it is. This this happened to me it was egregious. 
but I can still also uh, grow right. and change. And you mentioned and, something earlier about you used the word letting go. Yes. So for clients that come to your patients, mm. um, how do they know when to let go? And just for people listening right now, yes. is there a point when you know, oh, right, okay, I feel better now, I'm going to let go? Mm. Is it something that just comes from within? <laughs> is it something that can be learned? Mm. Um, what advice do you usually give out to people that come to you with this? You know, that's a great question, Michael. And honestly, I wish there was a timetable for letting go because it would be something to at least look forward to. Right. You know, if, if, if there was a date to look forward to, for instance, to heal from grief, I think that would be, um, I mean, that, that <laughs> it's fantastical, but that would be, I mean, a beautiful thing. I can just look right, forward right. to this day and I'll feel better. Unfortunately, uh it's depending on the situation. I mean, the, the people that I see have gone through a lot of trauma. There's a lot of trauma. And what trauma does is radically shift the way you experience reality, the way your body, your mind experiences reality. Everything just doesn't seem, I mean, the same. Uh, letting go is different for everyone. Uh, and people um, sometimes feel compelled to let go because of you know, family expectations, right, such right, expectations. Right, right. but it's different for everyone. It's different for everyone. Uh, and it's much better if people understand, you know, what happens when you are struggling with a traumatic event or you're struggling with grief, that there are stages to mm. letting go. Uh, there's this, I think a very common approach is, you know, the denial, the anger, the bargaining, the depression, you know, the finally the acceptance. But if people don't understand that there's actual stages, it could be a very, very, very confusing experience. You know, the sting of the struggle of letting go. Right. But when you recognize that there's actual stages to it, you can say, okay, good. Okay, I see myself. Okay, I'm in an angry stage, or I'm in a depressed stage, or I'm in a bargaining phase, or I'm in a disbelief phase, or I've gone through all these phases. Perhaps acceptance is coming soon, but mm. it's, it's different for everyone. It's different right, for right. Everyone. Hmm. That's 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 a good point because it's it's something it's something I'm actually aware of that the the idea that there are, there are different stages. Yeah, yeah. But it's just because you're aware of it doesn't mean you're always yes yes um, paying attention. Of course, to those different absolutely, stages. absolutely. And just to speak to that, it, and that's actually a great point that you bring up because it's hard to it's hard to be focused on those stages when you're so emotional, you know, and. When you're extremely emotional, it's hard to process information. I mean, just the way the brain works. Uh, you know, when you're experiencing intense emotions, your your planning is not priority. <laughs> right. Your fear or survival is priority. Right, right. Whatever issue you're dealing with is priority, not not some logic that you're trying to use to manage the situation. Not not when you're in a high intensity emotion. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would not be thinking about stages if I'm right. just <laughs> grief stricken. Like what's what stage? Like what stage? I'm in number right three. Okay. <laughs> That's where I'm at right now. Oh man. Good point. Um so there's a huge what's the right word here? There's a huge marriage between psychology mm. and film. Mm. And how over the decades, film has been used or psychology has been projected through film, mm -hmm. right? Um, so can you expand 
on that and mm. how you as a psychologist, mm. as an esteemed <laughs> doctor in psychology, I'm humbled. how do you see those um, constructs? I'm, I'm sure you see them Absolutely. all the time. Absolutely. And I'm sure there are a lot of things that you see yeah. as a trained psychologist that the average person doesn't see, especially yeah. in the film. Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, there's that's actually a great question. And and real quick, a yes. great example just to open the door mm-hmm. for people that um, are listening would be us. Mm. That's a very simple example of how um, psychology is used through film. Oh, I see, I see. You I know, see. but there are many different examples. Absolutely, absolutely. But please go ahead. Sorry, yeah. us. I meant I meant to say actually get out. No, <laughs> I, I, I had and I said us. Even both. Yeah, films. both, both. But yes, Get Out yes. Is, a, is a really plain example how um, that marriage kind of lives and exists, and it's it's been that way for a long time. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there, there's <laughs> there's several films that um, that actually show that marriage between mental health or psychology and uh, uh, film. I mean. Clockwork Orange comes to mind. Um, uh, pulp fiction, pulp fiction comes to mind with substance abuse, drug abuse, right. violence. And to add to that, actually, yes. there are a lot of instances where um, film is used to shape the psychology of society. Of course, as well, of course, of course. Of course. We can go on and on with that, but sorry, yes. go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, we we can go and talk about propaganda films all day. Um, but yes, psychology and film have always had um, <laughs> a very, very interesting relationship. And incidentally, in in my practice, I hear a lot of references to film. I've heard people, you know, say to me that you know they thought life was like uh, essentially a movie. Mm. You know, they watched movies and they thought you know their relationships would look like what they saw on TV or their parents would look like what they saw on TV. Right, right, right. And they forget that these narratives are, you know, fantastical. It's not real life. Mm. You know, and it causes a lot of disappointment, a lot of dissonance when you have a client coming to your office saying that she thought or he thought uh, the relationship he had with his parents would resemble something closely, close to something he saw on, you know, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Right, so right, speak, right. For example. Um, but it's, it's, Something that also has adaptive qualities. There's some great films that can um, serve an ex- as an example uh, of resilience. Right. Uh, there's that film. Remember that film with Will Smith and he had a child or something. Pursuit of Happiness. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Uh-huh. That film is an example of you know how just being conscientious can. Could be helpful. How resilience could could help you achieve a lot of goals. Right, right. Uh, it can keep you steadfast. It can keep you motivated. It can keep you going in the face of danger and and adversity. Right, right, right. You know. Uh, so yeah, I mean, films has its place in you know adaptive behaviors, but also obviously in maladaptive behaviors. Of course, of mm-hmm. course. And so I know you're super introspective. Since Sometimes. I can remember, you've always been that way. So through all your experiences and just in general from your practice and yes. 
um, your career, what is what have you gathered is the meaning of life? Oh, I can't tell you that. that. That's for me to know. Me alone, Michael. Yeah, but you can you can you can expand. You can drop some <laughs> salt. You know, um, my my beliefs are based on my experiences, obviously. Of course. Being Captain Obvious. But uh, my <laughs> beliefs are solely based on my experiences, my trials and tribulations. Of course. Uh, you know, when I speak to my clients, I do tell them, listen, what I'm saying to you can be challenged because, you know, there's more than one way to solve a problem. You know, there's more than one way to live. It's more than one way to uh, have a life, a fulfilling life. Right. A life filled with quality. So what meaning I've derived from my experience, you know, my, my, the totality of my experience is I don't know anything. Mm, I like that. That's actually. what it's boiled down to. I am I am exceedingly humbled, exceedingly, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. The more I study the mind, the brain, behaviors, human beings, cultures, societies, so on and so forth, it, it just I I I know nothing, right. not even a speck, not even a speck. Everything is such a mystery to me. Mm. Everything is just a mystery to me. You know, you know that, you know. You know the things that I've, you know the things that I've told you, the things that our sisters told us, you know, just, just these experiences that are indescribable. So, the meaning I've had so far is I don't know anything, but I will learn. I will keep learning and keep trying to figure out what the meaning of life is. But so far, yeah, still learning. Yeah, the rabbit hole goes deep. (laughs) (laughs) It goes deep. It goes really, really deep. There's no bottom to it. Oh, so while we're on this topic, yes, this is a conversation we've had many times. Mm. Is in your opinion, you think free will is exists, or do you think it's just an illusion? Ooh, I like I like this question, but but my answer is 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 kind of. it's something that is actually part of, you know, is 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 something that I use in my own personal life. So that question, the answer is, is it even consequential? Hmm. The if there was an answer to that question, what, what are, I mean, is it consequential? So your your question is, do we have free will? And my my answer is just a statement. Does it actually? Does it matter? Does it? It does matter. How so? Because it impacts how people. It literally changes the way you live your life. Of course, absolutely, yes. You know, like yes. I, I don't believe we have free will. Okay. So literally everything that happens, I'm like, well, it was meant to happen. Okay. It takes the burden of, fuck! I should have tried harder, or I should have done this differently, or. Yes. It takes the burden, uh, the burden of regret out of the equation. I see, I see. So for someone that lives a life with the idea that we do not have, that we do have free will, mm. I think it, they're more, 
they live a different life than I do. Let's just put it that way. Well, how do you define free will? I mean, we need a definition. First. Free will, to me, at least from my perspective, the idea that you're in control of your that you have agency over your life. Correct. Okay, and you don't believe that people have agency. No, I mean maybe you might have agency with what toothbrush you. <laughs> <laughs> by CVS okay. or what meat pie you choose to eat. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, okay, so this is, this is, so this is, so I gave an answer. My answer earlier was, is it consequential? So right. you don't believe. We have free will. Okay, well, I believe we have agency. Now, this is why I feel like it's inconsequential. Because in spite of my belief, I have made certain choices in my life. Right that has given me some kind of quality that I appreciate and I have gratitude for. And I've witnessed you and the choices that you've made and the things that you've done in your life. And I know that you are also grateful in spite of or despite this belief in agency or the lack thereof. That is true, but that is just a small sample size. I think there are millions no, of people absolutely, out there. Absolutely, absolutely. But, but no, I'm not even dis disagreeing. What essentially what I'm saying is, you know, that back to that dialectic that we were saying earlier, the way that we opened up the conversation was um, dichotomy. That was the word that you right. used, dichotomy. And I said, okay. And you said, there's also, there doesn't have to be dichotomy. It's dialectics. I think this is a perfect example of, you know, free will, no free will, great. It, it, it can still work right. in spite of whatever you believe. Right. I think I do agree with you. I think it, it can still work. I mm -hmm. just think that it it definitely shapes the quality yes, absolutely. of life, absolutely. depending on which way you view the No, you're absolutely point. right. There have been studies done on that, you on know. Ex extrinsic and intrinsic motivation, and it goes to show that there's some people's beliefs in free will or the lack thereof has a significant impact in their lives, in one right. way or the other, for better or worse. Right, right, right. Yeah, so... Um, but you know, I still believe that, you know, it's a consequence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, what are your What are your views on religion in the in the modern age? Oof. Uh, is mom and dad gonna hear this? <laughs> well, I uh, I mean, you know, you know, we grew up in a household, a Christian household. I don't subscribe. Uh, to Christianity, I identify as agnostic, and uh, this came with a lot of self-reflection and a lot of dissonance. Obviously, growing up in a household, you know, and you know where we grew up, you know mm -hmm. I mean? and I, it was a struggle. I, I really, really tried to figure out, um, you know, how to reconcile my uh, discomfort. Um, with Christianity, uh, with this kind of secular path that I was taking, and this ironically was in uh, USD, a Catholic school, but eventually I just kind of divorced myself from uh, just identifying as mm. Christian. And I still see certain values in Christianity that have a lot of substance. So just because I don't identify doesn't mean I can't see qualities uh, in that book that are valuable. Right, right. You know? 
So I, I don't, essentially what I'm trying to say is I don't I, I identify as agnostic. However, I see value in certain, uh, you know, certain parts of scripture, regardless of whether it comes from the Torah, the, you know, uh, the Bible, or the Quran, doesn't matter. Right, right. It's about growth, change, healing, helping, love, care. I, I think it has some use. Right. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for that answer. But I actually want to go back to. Because I want to ask you this question, since you see a lot of people that are not happy mm. with their lives, <laughs> and they come to you for answers. What, what are you about to ask me? It sounds like a big, <laughs> a very no. It's actually a simple question. question. Mm. And uh, that the question is: So, what is the best way? Um, for someone to obtain happiness? Oof. And that, that's a loaded question, but yes, I guess yes, I can yes. reward it by saying what are, what are one of the ways? Because you see so many people then in places in their lives where they're just miserable or yes, unhappy. I They've been through that. a lot, going through yeah. regret. <laughs> um, yes. So what is... Uh, one or several gems that you can drop on people listening right now. That... Well, first, I want to make this clear. I mean, obviously, we're just this is just a conversation, right? We're not. This is not clinical or therapeutic. This is not clinical advice. Exactly, it's not clinical therapy in, in any way, shape, or form. I mean, you know what? What happen, happiness meant to me in Nigeria has morphed into something else since coming to the U.S. Mm. What happiness meant to me when I was, you know, 18 has morphed into something else, you know, 10, 20 years later. Uh, essentially, happiness means something different to everyone at different points in their lives. Uh, what made me happy at <laughs> last year this is certainly not making me happy this year. So it changes and it can be all relative. However, one of the things that I do has remained constant is doing meaningful work. Uh, something meaningful. And I don't, when I say work, I don't mean, you know, like blue collar, you know, work. Right, right, right. I mean just something of substance, you know, learning something that you find valuable or doing something that you find valuable that is challenging but not impossible. So it can't just be easy stuff. That doesn't really feel any doesn't feel rewarding. Right, right. You know, it's something meaningful, something challenging that it's hard enough that's not going to make you quit, but it's hard enough that's also going to challenge you and you're going to feel that reward once you overcome it. Right. Uh, but that's what I've noticed. Some people are m missing uh, something that's meaningful. Right, so having a sense of pr purpose? Is that right, just, yeah. just, just doing something meaningful. I mean, when it comes to purpose, <laughs> I actually, you know, have an argument about purpose. I mean, purpose, bro. What's purpose? What does that even mean? Some kind right. of abstract concept, purpose. But doing meaningful work is always going to be tangible. It's always tangible, meaningful work, you know, that has some kind of value to you or someone else in your life. You know, that's something that I do know that I've seen and observed uh, that has brought some kind of joy to people's lives. I agree. The, the, the ability... To make a difference yes. in some kind of way. Yes, yes. And see that difference blossom. Yes. That has nothing to do with you. Yes, absolutely. Yes. You know. Yes. But caveat, 
like I said, meaningful work. It's it's challenging, but not impossible. Right. I don't feel like I've accomplished a goal uh, when I go to the gym and I lift two pounds. I don't feel any kind right, of... Right, right. There's nothing. There's no resistance. No resistance, yeah. Right, there's no resistance. So, I mean, doing something that has some kind of resistance that you can look back and say, wow, I, over, I overcame that. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, obviously, when it comes to being happy, there are a lot of factors that come into play. So many factors that come into play. So, I mean, I'm just giving a very, very simple answer. Of course, of There's course. so much more to this story than just um, doing meaningful, meaningful work. Okay. And so, so do you think... Speaking of happiness, mm. do you think intelligence um, and happiness... Mm. are tied together in any way um, I meaning do you feel like and this this is you know a, a question out of left field but do you think there's a higher chance of being happy if you if you're more intelligent hmm yeah, well, that's an interesting way. And it's tricky because I think I think you're. I think you have a higher <laughs> chance of being happy if you're self-aware. Yeah, of course, if absolutely. You, yeah. If yes. you, you know, read and work yes. on yourself, yeah, and becoming a better person. And the reason why I see you have a higher chance of being happy is not because that makes you smarter; it's because it makes you more aware mm. of yourself, of the world. Yes. Um, the way the world works, it makes you aware of deficiencies within yourself. Of course, of course. Um, so there are so many benefits that, in my opinion, actually have nothing to do with making you smarter, but just right. based on your experience, mm. um, because I'm 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 sure you see a wide array of people yes, in your office. I do, I do. So what have you kind of um, gathered? <laughs> Well, yes, I mean, intelligence does have a significant role in your quality of life. Sorry, it has what? It has a significant role in your quality of life. Mm. I mean, like you say, awareness, I mean, if you're aware, then you're probably aware of resources that you need (laughs) to improve your quality of life. Or you're aware of the skills necessary uh, to acquire what you need to improve the quality of your life. So, yeah, intelligence does... But it doesn't necessarily mean that it will make you happy. It's just a factor that can contribute to your happiness. Right. There's certainly a lot of intelligent people that are suffering or who have perhaps used their intelligence uh, to undermine their own lives. Uh, so I just want to make that, um, you know, distinction. Right. That yes, obviously intelligence... Uh, has its benefits. It can increase your awareness of the resources you need. Uh, you can be very good at abstract thinking, planning. Uh, obviously, conscientiousness has a great role to play when it comes to your intelligence, knowing what to do, how to be effective. Uh, and being a dumbass doesn't really do right. much. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't really do much for your survival. Your chances of survival. Your right. chances of survival, but... Um, Yes, absolutely. Intelligence can improve your chances of being happy. Yes, absolutely. Right. Okay. Doesn't mean you will be, but right. <laughs> and I remember a long time ago, this just came to me. We were talking about how, I think we were talking about dating, and mm. you were saying how in your in the past, 
Mm. We're really sensitive mm. um, about your about how you were viewed and not to offend people just in mm. general. Mm. And um, so that leads me to my question, my next question, which is mm. how much effort mm. should be put in not offending other people? That's an interesting question. You know, it's funny that you're asking me this because I actually just read some article about that. Huh. So perception is reality. Yes, Obviously, that yes. goes a long way. Yes. But yes. in the big scheme of things, yes, I've learned in my experiences mm. that putting in a large amount of effort mm-hmm. in how you're perceived is to say the least, is draining. Absolutely. Yeah. I think being yourself, you can go a lot further with being authentic, regardless if you're seen as brash or yes, whatever yes. that means. Whatever how you, regardless of how you're perceived, you can go a lot further in life. But Michael, wait, wait. You said be so. Actually, another thing you said being yourself. So some people don't know how to be themselves. Mm. That could be a challenge. When people say be yourself. To some people who hear that, they're like, what does that even mean, hmm. be yourself? So that's something that needs to be addressed first, uh, I think, in order to get to this place where you can be assertive and, right. and, and you know, not have to worry about how other people perceive you. Right, right. But sometimes being yourself can be hard to figure out. What does that even mean to some people? That's a good point. I, I th- <laughs> the funny thing about being yourself is I actually feel like we are programmed yes. to think that we should be reacting and modifying our personalities mm. to acquiesce based on how we're treated, <laughs> based on our experiences. Oh, yes, yes. And yes. that is further from the truth. So mm. what I mean by that is if you have a bad experience in mm. a relationship yes. or with somebody on the street, yes, you have to go out of your way to make sure that that experience does not affect who you are at your core. Mm. You know, you should not let the world dictate. Right. Absolutely. Your personality. Yeah, that. The, the you know, and, and it's, it's easier said than done, obviously, because right. if you have a bad, because we're, we're a collection of our experiences. So if you have a, a bad experience, then you're going to, react a certain time when you're in that situation again Absolutely. because it's all about yeah, self-preservation yeah actually yes there's a lot of influences yes from past experiences. Um, but that's 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 a huge part of of being who you are at your core mm. because i've had a lot of experiences that could have shifted yes who i am and um i make sure i don't let the world dictate um my appearance yes and it's that's the hard way to go because the easy thing to do is just to say, you know, that guy, you know, fuck me over that girl, mm-hmm. fuck me over that. Oh yeah, that's true. My boss, fuck me over like whatever um, situation you want to put yourself in. Yes. You know, that guy stole my money, so I'm never gonna trust people anymore. The funny thing is, um, the alchemist actually <laughs> drops some gems on that. One of my favorite. Books, you know how yes. you shouldn't let people affect um how you view the world yes you know 
Um, so anyway, I just went on that diatribe to to piggyback well, to my actual not, question. Uh, I don't think that was too um, bad. But yeah, so so what are your thoughts on that? You know, well, um, how much effort should be put into not offending other people? Well, Michael, I think Michael, you already know how I feel about this, and yeah, I do, but the world doesn't. Yeah, how I feel is this. <laughs> How I feel is that, um, you know, your worldview, the one that you just, you know, described, is something that is uh, a combination of things. I mean, and you said it yourself, you know, you have these unique experiences that have contributed to your worldview. The, the thing is, your worldview sometimes would not, probably is, gets lost in translation to someone who doesn't have the capacity to get to that where you currently are right or doesn't have the resources um you know to kind of achieve this level of insight that you have and it's it's neither here nor there as a negative or positive it's just that you have these experiences that have allowed you to think in that space that kind of space whereas they don't have that experience uh and that can um I mean, that can get in the way of them understanding uh, that others' view of them doesn't matter. You know, the fact that they don't have what you have, that alone could be what's missing in their lives and what makes them think about how others perceive them. Right. You know, so until they have your experience, and not only understand, not only have your experience, but understand your experience and know how to conscientious, uh, conscientiously apply your experience. They'll continue to do the same thing, you know, until they can occupy the space that you're in. Right. Right. So the reason I say that is this: so I'm talking to clients, and I'm giving them all these tools. Right. I'm 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 the I'm the I'm the psychotherapist, and I'm giving them all these tools, and they're looking at me like, what the f- what is he even talking about? Right. So in my head, I've done the training. Uh, I've had several experiences, layers and layers and layers of experiences. Uh, I've been to, I mean, obviously I grew up in a different country. I have a perspective that perhaps they don't have, uh, an education that they don't have, uh, which creates that kind of, what would you call it? That wedge when it comes to understanding. Right. You know, so I can, I can say, okay, well, uh, I don't struggle with people judging me. But for them, that is something they are pre- uh, preoccupied with 24-7 because of something that happened to them in the past or something that's going on in their lives currently. Right. Yeah, so that, that's essentially, I mean, I think you, you've known that that's been my stance. You know, it's just um, people are defined by their experiences. Yeah. Speaking of experiences, you see a lot of people with... Uh, Relationship issues. <laughs> um, relationship issues, yes. People that experience mm-hmm. crazy relationship oh, issues. Yes, I get to hear about it. Yes. From, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend to, to fiancés to married couples. Mm-hmm. So over the years, what, what have you come to learn? What have I learned? Um, not for yourself, but on what have you learned about relationships? 
mm. and the importance of either taking your time or picking the right person or not right. feeling obligated <laughs> to get married. Right, right. Um, there's so many different ways we can we can take this, but right. for the most part, oh yes, so many. What have you learned um, about relationships and um, just being with the right person? Oh wow, you know what? I'm actually gonna use something that you said to answer this question, and. You said moments ago, be yourself. And that is the answer to that question. Now, the work of finding who that is uh, will define the quality of your relationship. Because when you know yourself, you have two people in a relationship that know themselves, have done the work, have uh, know their strengths, know their flaws, know their values, their values for themselves. So independent of values that they were... They learn from their parents or their culture, their ethnicity, whatever. They have been man or woman enough or whatever they identify as to claim that, okay, this is what I believe in. This is what is going to give me the quality of my life. Uh, this is how I communicate my needs. I have no shame in my needs. I have no shame for who I am. I have no shame for the things that I've gone through in the past. I can take care of my own business. I can do things that would improve my sense of self, right. sense of competence. You do that work on your own, and you find someone else who've done that, who's done that work on, on their own, and, I mean, you can potentially have a very, very rewarding relationship. But relationships require a lot of skill. It takes skill to know how to communicate, know how to self-soothe, know how to respect yourself, know how to respect your partner. Unfortunately, uh, we are not taught these things. We learn secondhand from our parents who barely know how to, you know, communicate in the first place. Right. You know, so, uh, you know, you grow up in a household, you learn from your parents who learn from their parents who learn from their parents, and you're just passing a bunch of second down, uh, uh, I mean, secondhand information that really doesn't have much quality to begin with. Uh, so one must do the work on themselves. It's, uh, it's a long journey. Right. And, and how do people find the courage? So for a lot of people that feel like they're in a bad relationship or mm. they're in a relationship that is not beneficial mm. to their mental health, mm. Mm. to their well-being, mm. to their um, self-esteem. Oh, yes. Yes. How do they find the courage to leave? Because I, I know, I, I feel like, when a relationship is over, and this is what I've noticed with a lot of people, not from my experiences, mm. I guess I can count me as part of them, but um, just for, uh, from a lot of friends I've mm. met and from women I've actually dated in the past, they've mm. told me this about the men that they were with. Mm. And the theme here is people usually know when it's time to move on. It takes them... Right months to sometimes even years <laughs> yeah, to true. get the courage or yes. some something crazy happening for them to be like, all right, cool, I need yes. to leave. Right. So in essence, what is the best way to save yourself <laughs> from wasting your time, wasting your life, wasting your patience? You're asking really big questions. Yeah, I, I am. thought you were going to take it slow. <laughs> I have to ease into this. <laughs> so what is... Uh, what are some tools that people can use to realize, look, 
I just need to end this now. I know it's scary. Mm-hmm. Change is, is very scary for a lot of yes, people. Yes, 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 yes. You know, yes. even though the change is something that's going to be in your benefit, mm. it's still scary. It's one of the hardest things course, to do. Of course, You know, leaving a job, a high-paying job, or even a low-paying yeah. job for a new job, that's scary. Of course. You know, because you go to work every day like, okay, look, I already mastered the system. Right. I come to work every day. I know what to do. I know what to expect. Right. I know who the right. asshole is. I know, <laughs> you know... I know everything about this job. Right, right. Versus the high paying job where it's like, man, that's scary. I don't know what to expect. It yeah. might be harder. It's a little further away from me. Just and that's just one example. But there's so many examples of change that we fear on a daily basis. Right, right. So and that's that bleeds over into relationships as well. <laughs> yes, you know, yes, the fear does. of I'm used to this girl. Yes. I'm used to this guy. We've been together for a long time. Yeah, um, it's a lot more difficult to just be single again and 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 find somebody else. And I do understand, obviously, a lot of people make mistakes. Yes, yes. Where they True. feel like, you know, what this just isn't working. We're not getting along, or whatever the case is, and they <laughs> they end the relationship out of being lazy mm. and end up looking back and realize, wow, I I fucked up. I made a mistake. <laughs> that girl was like amazing or that guy was like amazing what was i thinking right right so i do acknowledge that mistakes do happen but for the most for but what i'm talking about here is obviously it's just in a healthy relationship so I see. how do people find the courage to move on well that's a lot there i know i have to it's very dense let me let me let me try to you know take it piece by piece so when it comes to being lazy um I don't know if I would call it laziness based on what I've experienced. You know, perhaps I would have considered it to be laziness uh, when I was um, not in the field, but being able to sit in front of these couples, there's just a lot of frustration. They're just tired, frustrated, tired of doing the same thing over and over again, the same arguments, the same fights, same frustrations, same disappointments. You get to this point where it's just this, this um, ennui... <laughs> <laughs> just this malaise this listless way of just experiencing a relationship right, right. you don't want to see them they don't want to see you. right so it's just you get to this point where you just don't try anymore and it, it can look like laziness right but it's perhaps just you know just tired of the same can you imagine just the same old argument every single day right um, but how do you stay out of relationships I, I think it uh, or harmful relationships or push that exit button. Number one, I hope people out there know, you know, who to reach out to if they feel like their safety is being threatened. Obviously, the authorities or legal resources. Right, right. Uh, obviously, 911 for, for people who feel like they're in a, you know, untenable situation, abusive relationships. But um, it goes back to really understanding what's important to you. Your safety, what are your values? You know, what's really important to you? Um, and once again, what you said, Michael, earlier, be yourself. Do you know who you are? And this person that you are, does does this person allow this kind of conflict in the relationship or, or disrespect? Whatever the issue is, whoever you think you are, whoever your ideal self is, do they engage in such behavior? Now, my, I have a different approach, Michael. And my approach is not about changing, but about accepting your predicament. 
I think that gives them truly the opportunity to really, really sit down and ask themselves, okay, can I actually accept this? So because everyone has been telling them to change, so there's going to be some resistance. If I, if I show up and say, okay, I'm the 10th person who's going to tell you to change. Right. What I do do is I tell them, hey, listen, I'm not going to ask you to change. I'm actually going to encourage you to remain the same. And I want you to sit here and accept the consequences of remaining the same. No complaints, no argument. Just accept. Can you sit there and accept that? Can you accept this level of dysfunction without complaint, without discontent? And mm. I'm, I'm, bat I'm batting a thousand right now. No one has said yes. No one has said yes, I will take this level of conflict and chaos in my life and I will not complain about it. I will fully, 100% accept. No one has said that yet. You know, so rather than change people, I just say, sit, look at your situation. Can you truly accept this situation along with all the consequences of remaining in that situation without complaint? And bad in a thousand, everyone says no. It's untenable. It's, it's uncomfortable. But from a different approach, it's not just telling them to change. It's telling them, no, just be comfortable. Every single day, wake up mm. and accept. Wake up and accept your dysfunction every single day. Wake up. Can you do that perpetually? And it's no. And that's when the change begins to manifest or the desire to change. Right. It's just like, I don't want this. I have to do something different. You know? So you leave it to them. It's not you coming out and saying, I will change you. You really leave it up to them to make the change. Right, right. You know? So that, that's my approach when it comes to that situation. In your conflict, can you sit there every single day and say, yes, Lord, more of this. <laughs> yes, more of this, Lord. Can you do that? And, well, no, then, okay, let's figure out how to change. Right. And, and how, do, how do people find the courage to kind of get back on their feet? Oof, another heavy question. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's uh, one thing to accept, right? Yes, they, yes. They say, all right, cool, this isn't going to work anymore. I'm ready. Mm. I found my confidence yes i'm gonna leave now the real work begins yes 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 right it does. so yes it does how do people find uh Oof. the courage they need oh, question obviously uh, having a support system is very very important mm. yes. for people yes, to i mean especially when you're if you're getting divorced mm. or if you have kids yes yes Yes. You know, they're involved in the, oh, in the, in the breakup yeah. or even just you don't even if you're not getting divorced or you don't have kids. Mm. Um, when you've just been with somebody for a long time, mm. you know, it's it's not easy to move on. No, absolutely. it's not easy. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's very painful. How do people find that? You know, that courage that they need to say, all right, it's. It's not over. Yes. My life isn't ending. Yes. It's not as bad as I think it is. Yes. Right? And there is life after this. Hmm. Well, I think there was a book by, I think his name is Frankel. I don't, I can't, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, but one must find some kind of meaning. You it know? goes back to finding meaning. Yes, one must hmm. find some kind of meaning. You know, my meaning, uh, is is beyond just meaning for my life. It's meaning for other people in my life, other people of importance in my life. 
you know, so it's sustained not only by my own drive, but the drives and success for others in my life. Mm. Um, one has to look out and imagine something better than their current situation. You know, I mean, essentially, it's kind of in psychology we we say faith. I mean, we call hope or. We, I think I can call it faith, just some kind of belief, something to look forward to. And why is why why isn't the idea of having a meaningful life more advertised? I just feel like ninety nine percent of the world mm. is just living a life of just. <laughs> go to wake up, go to work, come well, home. I mean, I mean, for a lot of people, maybe they find meaning in that life. Exactly. You said it. You said it. From a... From my point of view, Yes. I feel like there are different levels of meaning, right? Yes. So you can wake up in the morning. Absolutely, yes. And go to work and be the best mechanic in town. Yes. And fix up cars and receive adulation and thank yous and all yes. oh, thank you for fixing my car absolutely. blah blah blah. Yes, absolutely. So there's there's meaning in that, absolutely. right? Somebody can find meaning in that. Yes. Um. But there are different levels of meaning. There's the meaning of building schools. Right. Right. You know, for disadvantaged kids, or doing what Akon's doing. Right, right. You know, in, in the continent of Africa. So I guess I, I'm fully aware that, that there are different levels of meaning, but for a lot of people, they are living a life with no meaning or or are not even searching hmm. for meaning. Um, so why do, you, why do you think it's not... Um, I, I feel like the idea of, of having meaning or purpose is something I only come across with enlightened people, mm. you know, people that are really into self-development and learning and becoming a better person. Right, right. Um, so it's, I'm really surprised that that's not something that's more prevalent in society, like the need to make a difference or the, the need to give meaning to your life or the meaning to, to be a blessing to somebody else and it could be something simple like for example I, I and and I think one of the issues actually is the, is the idea that people think they need to do something drastic I see to, to make a contribution or you have to find back. meaning right, or to make right. a contribution but every single day we have opportunities to, to make a difference no absolutely, you know? absolutely. I, was, I was just in LA two days ago and um, I was at my friend's place and they were talking about how um, there was a homeless vet that was asking them, begging them to stay in their apartment, mm. and they had already let him stay, so they don't really, they didn't really know this guy much. Mm. And so we're like, well, no, you know, I'm not just gonna let a stranger stay in my place, which is very understandable. Yeah. Um, this was in L.A. This was in L.A. two days ago, but a friend of mine, Rudy. He's a Marine right. vet, and right. he got up and said, hey, I've been, I've been homeless, you know, hmm. give me his number, I'll go talk to him. Hmm. 
And in that moment, I had no desire, to be honest with you, I had no desire to speak to him in that moment, mm. to speak to the homeless vet, because mm. I had other things on my mind. But I did know that I was not going to leave LA with him not having a place. I see, I see. What, what, what prompted that desire to do that? I've, I've, I've known for a long time that my purpose mm. is to help others. So mm. I, I want to do it on a large scale, mm. but on a daily basis, I'm aware and the reason I'm aware is because I'm looking for opportunities to also help others on a smaller scale on a big basis. I see. So it's something I'm always open to. It's very noble. So because I'm open to it, the universe gives me examples on a You're daily basis to, to help others. Right, absolutely, yes. And so in that moment, Rudy went and talked to him. And I said, look, you're going to get him a place to live for the next five days or however long he needs. Right. I'll split it with you. That's nice. That's very generous of you. You know. Very, very generous. So that was an example in that moment. I see. Of finding purpose on a smaller level, but to him, that's... I see. To that military vet that was homeless, you know, what that meant to him is, is priceless. I see. Right? I see. So I think that if more people, you know, thought that way... Right. They can find meaning on a smaller level, which... Mm -hmm has a, I mean, it reverberates through their lives. I see. I see right? what you mean. Um, but I, there's so many, I can go on and on about examples like that, that, that I do all the time, but yeah. I'm just really curious, and maybe you can answer this, why people don't either have the desire to find meaning or mm. um, just choose to capitulate to a oh. life of, well, that's, that's, a, that's a big question. Uh, you see, my view is very, uh, it's, not, it's not actually not unique, it's just, it is what it is. And my view is this, uh, and I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier when it comes to um, knowing yourself. Uh, someone who, for instance, let's say, quote unquote, knows themselves, as in understands where their emotions come from, understands... Uh, what they have agency of and what they don't have agency of, uh, understands their strengths and their weaknesses, uh, understands what spaces they can occupy and what spaces they're not welcome at, has an advantage over someone that has none of those characteristics. Um, and these characteristics are important when it comes to, you know, this search for this meaning, this meaning that we speak of. Uh, what I'm saying is perhaps there's so much suffering that one cannot um, even have the capacity to ask that question. Right. You know, there's so much suffering in the world that um, people may find it difficult to just ask that question because you're in survival mode all the time. Right. There's just one thing after the other uh, happening all the time. There's also people that are just living their regular life, working class people, lower income people, uh, who don't have... Uh, who are not fortunate enough to have that privilege to do something meaningful because it's just in survival mode all the time. Um, and it doesn't mean uh, perhaps whatever they are doing is meaningful to them uh, because it's putting food on the table, it's putting a roof over their head, it's sustaining a relationship with their children or their loved ones or it's paying for child support or whatever. 
it has it means something to them on that scale. However, this other meaning that we speak of when it comes to doing something of substance, all of these are in quotes, by the way. Um, hmm. I, I know I recognize what you mean by that, but that requires the space for it. So the capacity for it, um, which is a combination of other things, you know, awareness, mindfulness, uh, being able to plan, think abstractly, you know, being creative, so on and so forth, you know, and having a space where you're not having to survive <laughs> 24-7 ducking <laughs> bullets or anything like this. Right, right. But yeah, I mean, that's my answer to the, the question. I mean, it's, I, I, meaning can be subjective. Uh, meaning does have significant impact on people's lives and their ability to change and grow. However, at the same time, the fact that one does not have this quote-unquote meaning, um, it doesn't really diminish their quality of life. They right. Could, they, could, they can like things just the way they are. Of course, of course. Yeah. Hmm. And so how I mean you obviously read a lot and oh yes I love to read you're a deep person on so many levels but <laughs> I'm curious what how has traveling oh oh yes affected you oh, oh, oh my God. you know what <laughs> I'm glad you asked this question and I think it means a lot that question means a lot to me I was thinking about it before we started this podcast about traveling and what it's done to me. But I didn't know. I, it just came to my mind. So the answer is this. Traveling radically had an impact on me. It was an awakening. I went to... I went to Europe for the first time uh, in 2012 with friends. And, I mean, I came back just radically different. I knew it. I felt it. The world is different from my worldview. Life goes on in spite of me, despite of me. Beliefs, values, systems, hmm. operation systems all continue independent of me. Life goes on. That's, that's what I learned. <laughs> right. Life goes on. Figure yourself out. That's what I learned. You know, you're not special. You're not unique. You're not, you know, all that. And you are all that at the same time because you have a unique approach on these experiences that you have. Right. So it just radically changed me. It shifted me. I mean, I used to write a lot then, and my writing slowed down because I just became more reflective. I, I used to write a lot before I went to uh, Rome. I actually, that's where I went. I went to Rome, then I went to Switzerland. And... Uh, I went skydiving and my brain is still in shock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I went skydiving over the Swiss Alps and I, I have not been the same. It's changed the way I see life. It's changed the way I experience myself. It's changed the way I experience others. Um, I encourage people to travel as much, far and wide and as often as they can. You know, it'll radically change the way you see yourself and the way you see right. the world. You know? Yeah, it's... Um I agree with you and everything you said. I think that being the person I am today, it's yes. almost 
I don't want to say it's almost, it's, it's impossible to be with someone that doesn't travel. Uh, your traveling's next level, though. You know, no, I mean, yours as well, but I think, I think, and I think that people that, that travel can identify with this. Yes. It's just impossible to be with someone. If you're a traveler, if you're a <laughs> Who just you know, wants to stay home? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's just impossible. Or even, TV. even just being with someone that hasn't seen the world. And, oh, and, of course. I mean, yes, yes. To some extent, yes, you know, because I, I it, it literally that. does change who you are. It changes your your. your opinions it yes your perspective yes yes it does um yes i can go on and on i mean like you just actually brought a thought to mind the more i travel the less opinions i have the less i speak right. i mean i'm get, getting more quiet quieter and quieter the more i travel the more experience i, I just have nothing to say right. you know yeah it's like it's just like why no, I have no input. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, I see things the way they're supposed to be seen. I just want to keep my opinion to myself, unless I have something of value to say. Right. I think yeah. the biggest thing for me is is traveling has stripped down the idea of who I am. Mm. What do you mean by that? Um, the idea that my physical body is just a vessel meaning mm. I at my core mm. I'd be who I am but on the outside I'd be different if I was born somewhere else my oh, belief yeah. would be my beliefs would be different uh, depending on where I grew oh, up yeah, my personality true. would be different oh yes absolutely yeah um, absolutely the idea of Michael is is nebulous is fleeting which is yes. open to change depending on how my life would have turned out Absolutely. like I said at my core I'd still be the same person my spirit would still be the same mm. but the shell would be different all the stories would be different the yeah, stories obviously. would be different my memories would be different even something as simple as you talked about this earlier growing up in super Christian family yes you know that Super. inadvertently has had an impact absolutely on who I am that has had an impact on my beliefs to a certain extent mm -hmm. and I can just see let's just say mom and dad were born I don't know in Saudi Arabia for example of course, right? of course. and he grew up Muslim of course my ideologies would be a lot different my 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 perspectives on justice of course of course um on faith would be a lot different of course so that begs the question are we really who we are or are we just a, a, a compilation of our experiences mm. <laughs> you know well i'll go with the latter so <laughs> and and the reason i say that is because before i started traveling i was under the impression that i'm just I'm me, it's yes. me, it's Michael, right? And like I said, I, at my core, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that my spirit and soul would be the same. But when we talk about the idea of, you know, I would use the Matrix for example, right? Mm, I love that movie. Um, in the Matrix, or at least in the first movie, Neo. If you look at the beginning of the movie and at the end. 
he's not who he is in the quote-unquote real world. Yes, yes. In the fake world, which is the Matrix, you know, his he's this, you know, super coy and <laughs> and nerdy and scared. Yes, and, yes, I remember that. By the time he gets it in a movie, he's his, he's somebody completely totally different. different. Yeah, so completely different. Um, and that's another thing that I would actually want to get into the idea of if we live in the matrix or not I've been <laughs> doing a lot of studying about psychedelics and mm. I was just reading some trip report trip reports tonight so mm. trip trip reports are pretty much people that have taken some psychedelics LSD DMT mm. uh, psilocybin and then they tell their stories about what they experienced mm. and it's it's incredible, mm. you know, and some an ideology that's introduced, an ideology that's introduced in a lot of trip reports, and even Terence McKenna talked about this mm. is the idea that the the world we live in is just one of many dimensions, mm. you know, and possibly just this might be actually the fake be the fake world. Mm. This might be. Feels real to me. <laughs> yeah, so this somebody said something which is interesting was this our perception of reality is actually a vacation. Mm. We're on a vacation from the real world and people and I mean Terrence McKenna is super well respected and Of course, of course. And he talks about, you know, the idea of multi dimensional universes and mm -hmm. And uh, even his brother Dennis has talked about that. Yes. And Dennis Alex. actually, I think he was reciting how he took mushrooms one day, and he saw um, on his in experience in his mushroom trip, he saw um, a world with was a field, there was a farm mm. with just a bunch of dead sheep. <laughs> And he just didn't know what it meant. This was just part of his experience. Oh yeah, I think I, I think I heard that actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, he, I think it actually happened in real and it life. Ended up happening, happened, and he, yeah. he was like, "What the?" Fuck? Yes, I remember that. I, I remember and it was that. literally exactly what he saw on yes, his trip. Yes, so he was talking yes. about how, you know, he believes that there are multi-dimensional universes, and he mm. went some in some way, shape, or form. He saw the future. Mm, mm. Um, but yeah, there are hundreds and thousands of people that have done these psychedelics and talk about those ideas so it's very fascinating to me mm. um, you know trying to attain a higher level of uh, consciousness but are you, are you are you considering it I wouldn't say I'm considering it but it's mm. very fascinating to me mm. I see you know because at the end of the day it's all about making sure that you have access to as much information as possible. Mm. So our experiences are just a collection of information. I see, I see. Um, but anyway, I went on a super tangent. Um, <laughs> what are you trying to ask me, Michael? <laughs> no, I was. we were talking about traveling. And yeah, that's when, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but no, traveling is, traveling is, is just, is just it's, it's indescribable. Absolutely. You My know, I still remember when we were in Paris, Seven years ago, yeah, and oh my God, seven years already. 
or just looking at all the architecture. Yes, yes. And I was just in awe. Yes. You know, and then seeing the Mona Lisa face to face. I was not impressed. For the first time. And that's another thing. Very so good. there are a lot of impressive things about traveling. And then yes. you also get to travel and realize that some things are just a lore. Of course. Right? I mean, My whole life, the Mona Lisa has been put on a pedestal. Yeah, you create the story in your head about that. You know what I mean? Yes. And yes. then to see that in person and just realize that, wait, this is it. <laughs> I was this underwhelmed. Is the, I was not this is the Mona Lisa? Not um, But yeah, I, I mean, just, just in awe of, of, of the architecture in France. It's just so beautiful and right, right. The vintage. and. What did you like about France? What was your favorite thing? The architecture. I love the architecture, yeah. Love art, so the architecture yeah. really, really, really stood out to me. Versailles was beautiful. Oof, my gosh. It was just, you know, stupendous. So decadent. Very decadent, yeah. <laughs> All the gold everywhere. I know, I know. I know. Was, um, just I the know, idea that, you know, somebody used to actually live. This was somebody's quote-unquote house. It's like it was glowing as we approached yeah. it. just like it was just glowing. Right, right. The gates were glowing with gold. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Uh, Michael, I I really appreciate the opportunity. I just want to let you know that um, um, this is a long time coming, and I'm really grateful. Uh, I can be reached at uh, drolatherapy.com. That is uh, D-R-O-L-A-T-H-E-R-A-P-Y.com. Uh, and we can correspond from there. Um, yeah. Thank you.